Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I had this babysitter who was a chronic dieter. She would eat colorless, aromaless food, and she was sad all the time. That's Dr. Linda Shu. She's an internal medicine physician who's done a lot of thinking about food. We're going to dive headfirst into food. How to eat better, yes, but also how to eat more joyfully. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slight Change listeners, it's Maya. New episodes of A Slight Change of Plans are coming your way this October. In the meantime, I wanted to share an episode that I returned to again and again. It's a conversation I had with the world-renowned chef Christine Ha, and I featured her story in my TED Talk earlier this summer. When Christine was 24, a rare neurological condition left her legally blind, and she was concerned she might never be able to cook again. Her story shows the power of imaginative courage in the face of change. I hope you enjoy it. I remember noticing that the vision in one of my eyes was blurry, and I assumed it was my contact lens. I took it out and I cleaned it, popped it back in. I still realized that my eyesight was blurry. So I ended up going to an optometrist and he checked out my eye, did all the usual eye exams, uh, concluded that it was actually something neurological. My brain was fine, but the nerve tissue that connects the eye to the brain transmitting the image that my eye was taking in was on the fritz. That's Christine Ha describing a rare neurological condition that caused her vision to rapidly deteriorate and left her legally blind by age 24. Christine had to relearn how to navigate so much in her life, the ins and outs of her home, opening mail, and cooking food for herself. Making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which had once been so straightforward for her, now felt like a daunting task. I noticed that when I put the jelly on the the slice of bread and all of the jelly got all over the counter, it dripped down my arm. When I tried to line the two slices of bread 
together, like the sandwich seemed not perfect. And I remember being very frustrated with myself, throwing that sandwich away and and just telling myself, I don't know how I'll be independent again. I don't think I'll be able to ever cook again. Spoiler alert, Christine did cook again, and she's found her independence again. Today, Christine's a world-renowned chef who goes by the nickname The Blind Cook. She won season three of the hit reality TV show Master Chef in 2012. And she's written a New York Times best-selling cookbook and owns two restaurants in Houston, Texas. On today's episode, a blind woman becomes a master chef and redefines what independence means to her along the way. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. Christine Ha grew up in a Vietnamese-American family, and she loved the traditional dishes her mom would cook for her. When Christine got to college, she was eager to recreate some of her mom's recipes, to reconnect with her Vietnamese heritage, and also to feel close to her mom, who had died of cancer when Christine was 13. The more Christine cooked, the more she realized just how much she loved it. The recipes and the experience of sharing food with her friends and family. So she turned it into a full-on hobby. But that all changed for Christine when she was diagnosed with neuromyelitis optica in her early 20s. She experienced blurry vision, numbness in her arms and legs, partial paralysis, and seizures. While medication would help with many of these symptoms, doctors told her to expect severe and permanent vision loss. I asked Christine to share what it was like to receive this news. I was very fearful. I felt very alone because at the time I was in my early 20s. And of course, most of my friends were not experiencing that. None of them I really knew had to deal with chronic illness, vision loss, those types of things. I I think when you're in your 20s, you assume you're invincible and you don't think you're going to be dealing with stuff like that until you're much, much older. So I felt very alone in what I was experiencing and no one could really relate. And so in my head, I was thinking, why are my friends not caring as much as I do about what I'm going through? Or why are they still able to laugh and and do normal everyday things and, and feel like that's okay when I can't? Can you say more? You mentioned that you felt socially isolated. And I'm wondering if you can, I think this is so relatable for so many people who go through unexpected and rare challenges, right, that they don't feel that other people can relate to them? So it's definitely a grief experience. So earlier in life, I had to grieve the loss of my mom when she passed away when I was young. But it's similar in that you go through the same motions. I was in denial. And then I felt upset uh, that I was going through this and other people didn't understand. I felt alone. Then I felt sad. Um, I felt at times, not often, but at times I felt sorry for myself, like wondering why this was happening to me and not somebody else. And then I think I I had to allow myself to sit in that space and feel that sadness and feel that loss. I basically allowed myself to pity myself and allowed myself to cry about it and ask, why is this happening to me? And tell myself, this really sucks. And you know, it took some time, a lot of thinking and, and just kind of 
ruminating with my own thoughts in my head, it helped me come to the realization that no matter what happens, the world is going to keep on moving on. So the sun will continue to rise, continue to set, regardless of what happens. And it, it is a weird feeling. And I, I feel like I've gone through this before with the loss of my mom. It's like you wake up the next day and you're like, there are still people driving to work. There are still people going to school. There's still, you know, people are still living their lives, even though my life feels like it just got turned upside down. You know, you mentioned that you had lost your mother at a young age. Um, I imagine that this forced a kind of independence on you. And I'm wondering whether that independent mindset in some ways prepared you for this moment of deteriorating vision. It's interesting you say that because I almost thought it was the opposite. So because I lost my mom when I was young, I did feel like I had to grow up fairly quickly and become very independent and rely mostly on myself. And when I lost my mom, I realized that you cannot depend on any person in your life because in a second, that person could be gone and then your whole world gets turned upside down. So I think for me, um, losing my mom forced me to be independent and not depend on other people. But actually, when I started losing my vision, I had to give up independence and I had to depend on people more and ask for help for even the most mundane of tasks like reading my mail or um, trying to identify things in the refrigerator or um, pouring myself a glass of water to drink. And so it stripped me of my independence. So uh, in a way, I really wasn't prepared for that because losing my mom did make me independent and then losing my vision made me learn to be dependent again. Yeah. And it sounds like from what you're describing that being independent had become a large part of your identity. So maybe you were in part grieving a loss of independence since you were now going to have to rely on people in a way that you hadn't before. Oh, definitely. I, I always say the hardest thing about the vision loss was the loss of some of the independence that I was used to. Hmm. So your vision is slowly deteriorating. Is there a moment where it, it, maybe it hits you for the first time, this is not getting better? You know, in the past, maybe I've been able to fight my way through problems, but this is one, I just don't have any chance against it. I think I had several moments like that. One of which I that really stands out in my head was a moment when I had lost some more vision. And like I, I'd mentioned, it was gradual over the years. So anytime it would decrease a little bit to a new baseline, I would start getting used to that baseline and be like, okay, well, this is, I can live with this. I'm I'm getting used to it. I can figure out how to um, still walk around without a, a white cane, or I can enlarge the font on my computer to 35 point font and still read my screen or, or whatnot. And then I would, as soon as I would get used to that, new baseline of my vision, it would decrease more and I'd lose more vision and I'd have to feel like I would start over. So I remember there was one particular time when my vision pretty much decreased to the level that it is now, which I describe as very, very blurry and very washed out colors. And I just see some foggy shapes as though if you were to step out of a very, very hot shower and your mirrors all fogged up and with the steam, that's kind of how I see. So it's very, uh, very, very blurry. Don't see much color, maybe some slight shapes, but everything's foggy and hazy. 
when it decreased to this level, I remember I was living alone at the time and I was trying to make a sandwich for myself. And I thought the easiest thing was going to be peanut butter jelly. So I was like, okay, I could find the bread. It's already sliced up. I just pull the slices out and I would just find the peanut butter by smell, find the jelly by smell, and then use a butter knife to spread the peanut butter and the jelly on the two slices of bread. But I think I was in a very precarious mental state at that time already. And it's not that the sandwich has to be perfect to be edible and good, but I noticed that when I put the jelly on the the slice of bread and all of the jelly got all over the counter, it dripped down my arm. When I tried to line the two slices of bread together, like the sandwich seemed not perfect. It was, and, and growing up too, I'm very much a perfectionist and I still sort of am. So I think just not being able to make a perfect PBJ sandwich at that time with, was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I remember being very frustrated with myself, throwing that sandwich away and and just telling myself, I don't think I'll be able to ever cook again. I don't know how I'll be independent again. You know, that's a moment that stands out in my head, but I've had many of similar moments like that. Yeah, it strikes me that in the face of a protracted vision deterioration, you know, the obvious upside is that it's giving you time to adapt to your new world and find new habits and restructure your life. But on the other hand, there is this torturous aspect that you described, which is, you know, you're clearly a a highly motivated and adaptive person, adaptable person. And at every step, you're saying, okay, I got this. I got this, folks. I I can work at this level. And then you're taunted by the fact that it just keeps getting worse. And so I imagine, yeah, you just kind of want to rip off the Band-Aid at a certain point and know what the end outcome is. Yeah, I, I'm always the kind of person, too, that would rather know the bad news than not know. So it's always so much more anxiety of not knowing, like, oh, will my vision get worse or yeah. will I be able to How do this? How bad will it get? You know? Exactly. So where do you go from the peanut butter and jelly sandwich moment? I allowed myself for however long I needed to to feel bad about not being able to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And then slowly, I think I just thought more about okay, well, I didn't get it right that time, but when I'm in a better headspace, let me try again. And then I would notice I could incrementally improve at little things in the kitchen. I noticed that as days went by and weeks went by and I would attempt a little bit more things in the kitchen to try to just feed myself, I would be like, oh, today I was able to cut an orange and eat an orange. And then maybe the next day I was able to uh, scramble an egg. Maybe some of it was burnt, but I was still able to do an egg. And then the week after that, I was able to scr- scramble an egg that wasn't burnt. And then looking back, I would notice my progress and the the steps forward that I was taking. So I had to tell myself like, okay, well, I couldn't do this a week ago or a month ago or six months ago. And then when you realize that you're making progress, I think it helps build confidence. And then that confidence gives you the courage to keep trying Uh, bigger and better things and and putting yourself to the challenge and realizing that even if you fail the first time or make a mistake, you learn from that and you reassess and and you try again. Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, the victory you felt at at being able to peel an orange. And I'm wondering if you can tell me more about how it is you had to change your relationship with cooking. You know, at the time it it was simply a hobby of yours, but what was involved in relearning how to cook and and navigate the kitchen safely? It 
remained a hobby of mine for quite a long time, and and I was losing my vision in this at the same time when I was voraciously teaching myself how to cook and reading all sorts of cookbooks and and experimenting in the kitchen. So each time I would lose a little bit more vision, it would decrease to like some uh, new level. I would have to teach myself again how to accomplish the same things in the kitchen. And and like I said, it was kind of a matter of taking these small steps and celebrating these small victories. But eventually I would just focus on being able to do things with my remaining four senses. And that actually taught me that cooking is much more of a multi-sensory ordeal than we often expect. Like you can definitely get by in the kitchen with your sense of touch and your sense of smell and your sense of taste. Most Those things I would say are the most important in the kitchen. And yes, it would help visually probably to tell if something is cooked in a pan, but over the years with a lot of experience, I'm able to tell if something is, is cooked by the texture and how it feels at the end of my cooking utensil or by the smell of like garlic. You can tell if it's raw or if it's fragrant or if it's burnt. So just learning over time to rely on my remaining four senses, much more so than my sense of vision, was really how I got back into the kitchen and taught myself how to cook a lot of the dishes that I'd I'd cooked before. And I actually think with my sense of sight out of the picture, I became much more of a, a nuanced cook in the kitchen, and I would pay much more attention to the small changes that a seasoning would make in a dish, and I'd pay much more attention to how things taste in your mouth when it comes to temperature and texture. And so I think that allowed me to focus more on those aspects of food, which helped me in some way become a better cook. So you end up writing a blog about your experiences in the kitchen at at a website you create, which is called theblindcook.com. And somewhat unexpectedly, the casting crew of this reality TV show, MasterChef, catches wind of your blog and ends up reaching out to you. Yeah, it was a strange one at first because I didn't believe it. And I remember I received a, an email through the contact form and they said, hi, I'm the casting producer for a show called MasterChef. It's with Gordon Ramsay. It's on Fox. We wanted to see if you would like to audition. And I asked my husband, and I was like, hey, isn't this name familiar, Gordon Ramsay? And John's like, yeah, that's the chef that's from the UK that's on like Hell's Kitchen and all that stuff. And he's always known for cursing at people, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, oh, if that's legitimate, you should totally uh, go and audition for the show. But we were like, is this for real? So at the time, too, I, I was very anonymous. Like, I'm naturally a an introvert and, a, you know, pretty private person. <laughs> so my blog had no pictures of me, did not have my real name on there. I kept it very anonymous so that if you went to that blog, you would never know who it was. And they reached out just wondering if I was a real person because, you know, there were no photos of me. There was nothing about my bio really on there, except I just wrote recipes and, and what it was like to be someone who's visually impaired. And so I said, uh, okay, I will come audition. And, you know, I went to the open casting call and auditions in Austin. And when the producers were traveling around the country trying to look for uh, season three cast, and then the rest was kind of history. Well, it's not going to be history right now. I want to hear all. <laughs> I want to hear all about your experience on on Master Chef. Um, so, you know, I personally remember seeing you walking out on a set to make your first dish as a competitor. 
uh, in a kitchen that was largely unfamiliar to you and that you're not able to see. And on top of all that, there's the added pressure of making a dish that's going to be judged by three of the most famous chefs in the world. What was that like, Christine? Like, what? What? I, I, I can't imagine that mounting pressure. There was definitely a lot of pressure. It was nerve-wracking. I mean, I was in a space that, uh, you know, in a big warehouse with a lot of people I'd never met before, all of the other contestants. I've never been familiar with what the entertainment world or television world was like. So I had no idea what to expect with all these lights, these directors, all these like cameras rolling on dollies. And of course, a lot of it I couldn't even see. So all I could hear was just a lot of noise around me. So it was not only stressful knowing that I would have to uh, cook a dish for these judges to taste, but stressful because I'm in a foreign environment as someone who's visual impaired and has no idea what's going on around me, except with the context clues of what I hear, what I smell. Wow. Well, I mean, things obviously went very well for you after that that first dish. You kept advancing through the rounds. And such a poignant moment is when Gordon Ramsay said your apple pie looked stunning and, of course, tasted amazing and delicious. He was just really blown at the fact that I totally thought I fed him a pile of rubbish, which is now the running joke. So at my restaurants, my apple pie that's served there as dessert is called the rubbish apple pie. Because when he asked me, I'm like, (laughs) I think it looks like a pile of rubbish. And I only use that word, too, because in my head, I was like so nervous. And I really wanted to say it looks like a pile of shit. But then I was like, oh, I'm on television. I can't use that word. So I'm like, naturally, I'm like, oh, he must use the word rubbish because he's from the the UK. So I was like, oh, it must look like a pile of rubbish. And, And, you know, he... He told me, he was like, no, it definitely doesn't. It looks great. The crust is golden and flaky. And wow. and then he scraped a, a knife or a fork on top of it to let me hear that it, it actually baked to the correct uh, flakiness level. And then he cut out a slice of pie that I guess held together and, and then tasted it and said it tasted good. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans when we'll hear more from Christine about her experience on MasterChef. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. There was this one moment when you were on on MasterChef that really affected me where you said you felt your vision impairment was affecting people's ability to focus on what mattered most, which which was your cooking skills. I didn't want people to think that what I was doing was so great or even better because it was someone that's visually impaired. I wanted to compete on the same level and be judged as the same level as everybody else. While, yes, maybe... It's going to be harder for me to do things because I'm visually impaired, but I didn't want that to be my quote-unquote handicap. I wanted people to focus more and judge me and give me true constructive criticism based on my merits and, and the food I was putting up to be judged. Yeah, and did you feel that by the end of the process that was happening for you? I do. I mean, I... It wasn't easy. So coming into it, they had to adapt my particular cooking station so that I could use it as a, a cook who's visually impaired. So I needed some assistance in certain ways or adaptations that made sense. But it's not like I would ask for more time for my challenge or expect like a different ingredient um, or expect special rules to be made for me. So 
at the beginning, yes, I did feel that insecurity that I wasn't sure how I would be treated because I'm sure a lot of people had never expected someone who is visually impaired to be able to cook. And I remember some people asking me, like, well, how are you going to cook? Like, are you going to stand on the side and, and, and call out your recipe and have your husband? My husband, John, was there at the time to assist me as my sighted guide. They were wondering if he would do all the cutting and I would just be on the sidelines, like telling him what to do. And I'm like, in my head, I was dumbfounded. And I'm like, no, I'm going to use the knife, of course. Like, that would be weird. <laughs> so uh, there was those kinds of questions from people who I think were completely surprised to see someone who's visual impaired, or uh, they thought that I was like a gimmick that was brought on by the producers for just for the ratings. And I was also insecure because still in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, I do have a disability that will that will make it harder for me to compete uh, with everyone else who's sighted. But I think as the competition went on, I started understanding what my strengths were, uh, and I started playing to those strengths, and I think that's what helped me go all the way to the end. And what did you feel those strengths were? Well, the strength was the fact that I couldn't see, I paid much less attention to or and was not distracted by what the other contestants were doing. And I feel like what happened to some of us at some times, and even I've done it in some of the early challenges in my season, was I would hear like, oh, someone else, so-and-so next to me is using really fancy ingredients or using a very fancy cooking technique. And then I would, you know, then you would think to yourself, oh, maybe what I'm doing is not good enough. It's not fancy enough. It's too pedestrian. And then we would change our dish that we plan to make halfway through. And then by then you only have 30 minutes left to achieve your new dish. And then at the end you can't finish it and then you serve up only part of a plate. And for me, I think what I I realized was that these judges have tasted some of the best foods in the world. There's nothing I'm going to do that's going to be like, that's probably going to blow their mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to cook something that I feel like eating, that I would be happy to eat myself or serve my friends and my family. And I wouldn't worry about what other people are cooking. I'm just going to compete against myself. And as long as I went into that kitchen and I was a better cook that day than I was the day before, then that's really all I could ask of myself. And so I started concentrating and focusing only on what I was doing and not paying attention to what the other contestants were doing. And I think that allowed me to stay more focused oh, and, uh, and know what I was going to cook and follow that course and that plan of action. And then I was able to finish my dishes on time and follow through. Okay. So I, I would I would love to revisit an incredibly joyful moment, obviously for you, but for so many people around the world who are celebrating along with you. What was it like to win MasterChef? The winner of MasterChef Congratulations. Christine. <laughs> yeah, my first thought was, thank God this thing is over. Uh, it, it actually took me f like two days for it to really sink in. I think it was the biggest shock I'd experienced in my life. And it, I... I remember that first night after winning, I could not sleep at all. And then it didn't really sink in that I'd won the whole thing until about 48 hours later. Wow. I'm wondering if there was anyone in particular that you heard from after your win that had a particular impact on you. 
Um, there are a lot of people that have reached out over the years, and I was just flooded with different stories about people recounting their own struggles, whether it was with vision loss or any sort of disability, whether it's mental or physical. Uh, and all of these people just came with their shortcomings uh, to me and being very honest about how seeing my story helped them try and turn their lives around or pick themselves up. And, you know, some things in particular, all the way from like just young children saying that I gave them the courage to try out for the soccer team to to someone, uh, a woman who said that she had been battling depression for many months and she couldn't get out of bed. And so she was flipping through the TV and, and then saw me on MasterChef and then started following it and watching the whole uh, season. And then after that, she stopped thinking about suicide and and left her bed and started cooking again for her family. So those sorts of stories, like they're so moving and it, I still can't fathom the impact that I've been able to have on so many people. But I think if anything, I remember on the show, my friend Scott, who's one of the contestants, he was like, you realize that after the show, even if you don't win, you're so much bigger than what this show is. And I was just like, oh, shut up, Scott. Like, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, we were like getting into the casting van. I was like, I don't know. That's weird. And even then, like, I had no idea, like, the impact my story would have on people. And years later now, it's been 10 years, and I still hear people watching the season for the first time and the, and my story helping them through whatever it is that they're struggling. And knowing that I've been given this platform and blessed with this ability to help other people just simply by sharing my story or being who I am, that is, like, the biggest gift of all. So have you have you internalized what Scott told you? Like, do you believe him now? I sort of do, but it's still very strange. But yes, I, I do. I had no idea. Like when I, t yeah, it is still weird to me when I think back. And I, I guess I just didn't have the outside perspective because I'm, I just feel like I'm just me, you know, and I'm just like, la-di-da, I'm just Christine. Like, yeah, I'm blind, <laughs> but I just do whatever I do. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate your humility. Um, but it's one thing to say in the face of adversity that you have big dreams, right? It's another thing to put in the hundreds of hours of work to actually achieve those dreams, to relearn fundamental things that you had taken for granted in, in the early part of your life. That translation <laughs> is, is what you know, I personally find so impressive about your story. Um, and, and I don't want it to be lost just how challenging it is to get back into a kitchen or, or to adapt to life in a kitchen where you're losing your vision and you are in the presence of danger and you are brave enough to learn how to use knives and heat on a stove and, and, and beyond that, achieve artistry, right? Like mastery at, at the highest levels. I truly believe when people tell me these things, like what you just said, Maya, I'm like, honestly, I feel like any person that would be put in my position will figure out a way. And you could do the same exact thing that I've accomplished if you were put in that same position. And because Not true. <laughs> I'm I, sorry. I, I, I refuse I to accept that. I truly believe that. I, I wow. think people are much more resilient than they give themselves credit for. And I'm for one of the Because I used to think I was like, there's no way I can, like... I find these goals insurmountable. And lo and behold, like day by day, like you just figure out a way and then I was able to accomplish things. But I don't think like I've accomplished like, I think I just am 
I was lucky and that I was in the right place at the right time. And yes, I do work hard. I, I do concur with that. And yes, I have some talent, but I don't think I'm any more special than the next cook or the next blind person or the next whoever next to me. We always look to other people and think, oh, they've accomplished something we can't. But it really comes down to how much do you want something and how much you're going to prioritize something. And for me, cooking was, it was, it was something I just really, really enjoyed. And I didn't want to give that up because I lost my vision. So I knew I had to find a different way to go about it. And part of it is cooking as a means of survival. Like I lived by myself when I was losing my vision. I had to, you know, there was no such thing as Uber Eats or deliveries back then <laughs> yeah. that you were easily attainable. So I had to figure out a way to make food for myself to eat. And you know, it was something for me to concentrate on and focus on when I was dealing with the vision loss because cooking gave me joy and I didn't always want to think about the sad things that were happening to me. Yeah. I mean, I do find it reassuring and inspiring that initially you were reliably underestimating your own resilience um, because maybe that means so many of us are too. That is what I learned about myself is, hey, I I am resilient. You're totally right. It's like, I don't think people realize that. And it was something I had to learn as well. When you realize that you are just one blip in this world or in this universe, but things will still continue to happen in the world around me. So I have the choice of either dropping out of society and feeling sorry for myself and not contributing to the world, or I have the choice of figuring out how can I in spite of the hand that I've was dealt with or in spite of the challenges that I'm trying to overcome how can I pick myself up and plug myself back into the society as it continues you've said that if you could get your vision back you wouldn't and i'm wondering well one if you still feel that way and and if you can say say more about that okay well, if I could get my vision back for like five minutes or like a day or a week, I totally would because I want to know what like 4K filming looks like. I always hear, <laughs> you know, I'm still stuck back in like, I don't even know when. I don't know what Ariana Grande looks like. I don't know what Justin Bieber looks like. I, I do believe that um, it, it is a gift to be able to see Ariana Grande. I think you could pass <laughs> on Justin Bieber in current form. <laughs> There's a lot of just things that have happened or cars nowadays. I don't know what the Tesla looks like. There are just things that all of my friends talk about that I feel I'm just at a loss. I don't really I can't fully experience these conversations. So I definitely want to see what my friends and my family look like today. I don't necessarily want to know what I look like because it's been a long time. Um, <laughs> you, but, <laughs> you look great. <laughs> but I think it would be really weird for me to completely gain my vision back permanently because I'm so used to living the life that I have now. And I feel like doing some of the things that I do without without vision, it seems kind of more fun or more accomplished in a way that I think it would just be weird to have my vision back. I want to dig into your relationship with independence today because my personal perspective, kind of crushing the independence game, Christine. Um, also, it was a huge part of your identity during a very formative moment in your life. And so what role does independence play in constructing your self-identity today? Before, if you were to ask me this when I was maybe in my teenage years or my early 20s, I would say independence is not depending on 
other people and being able to do everything yourself and rely solely upon yourself. I think if you ask me now, what does independence mean? It's changed for me because I'm not going to be unrealistic and deny the fact that I cannot drive myself somewhere until we, you know, we're close to having like self-driving cars, but until then, I can't drive myself somewhere independently. So realistically, I don't feel like I'm independent in that way, but I'm independent in the fact that I'm living the life that I want to live. When I want to ask for help, I'm able to ask for help and I I do it willingly. And then also knowing when I don't need help and doing things on my own, even if it's a struggle. Like sometimes my husband watches me like try to open a package or or do something and he's just like, why don't you just let me do that for you? Because he gets frustrated. Like I take 10 minutes, but then sometimes I'm like, no, I just want to do this on my own. And so I will do it because I'm stubborn like that. And that's my my definition of independence is asking for help when you want it or feel like you need it, but then also knowing when you, you want to do things on your own. And so basically living the life that you want. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed my conversation with Christine Ha, I'd recommend you listen to a conversation I had with psychologist Dr. Ayelet Fishbach. The episode is called The Science of Motivation. We'll link to it in the show notes. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our producer, and Mia LaBelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there, including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Lital Malad, and Heather Fain. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week. I wonder, Christine, what parts of your identity do you feel have stayed the same over the years and, and what parts have maybe changed? I like this question. Things that I think have stayed the same. I think I'm still the same goofball. I still have the same sense that. of humor. <laughs> I remember I, I joked with all of the producers on Master Show. I'm like, I said so many witty things and you cut it all out like in, in post-production. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, well, you know, we didn't have time for everything. Um, yeah, don't silence but- <laughs> my humor, people. I should let you know that every time my editor, Jen, tries to cut a joke from one of my interviews, I feel emotionally wounded and, and deeply, deeply offended. I'm like, do you not understand that this podcast is a launching pad for my future career in comedy? Okay. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I had this babysitter who was a chronic dieter. She would eat colorless, aromaless food, and she was sad all the time. That's Dr. Linda Shoup. She's an internal medicine physician who's done a lot of thinking about food. We're going to dive headfirst into food. 
How to eat better, yes, but also how to eat more joyfully. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.